Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. The last month has been a terrific birding month for me. I've been to Morocco. I've been to the coast for the Grays Harbor Birding Festival. I just got back from the WASC conference. And at the WASC conference, I met Shanine Finnegan. I'd actually met Shanine earlier on a pelagic trip and talked to her on the phone to set up this uh, episode. But I was really fun to have a chance to have dinner with her and talk a little bit. And so I'm very excited to have Shanine on as my guest today. Shanine is a really, really terrific birder and a terrific person. She's an artist. Uh, she's a trip leader. She sits on several rare bird committees. Uh, she's almost a legend in her time. So welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 17 with Shanine Finnegan. Welcome, Shanine. Thanks for being on the program today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Shanine, you have really had quite a career as a birder. I was wondering, could you tell us how you got started in birding? How did what's What ignited the whole thing? In general, my mom had a bird bath when I was little and knew the basic backyard birds. But what really triggered it was when I was in my mid-20s and I was doing gardening at her house. And I decided to make a checklist. My oh, first fancy list. that. Yeah. And it was completely wrong. It was all colloquial names. It, mm-hmm. This was in Los Altos Hills, California, near Palo Alto. And I had things like Blue Jay and Brown Thrasher and, you know, all the wrong names. Yeah, sure. But then it was seeing what I believe was a yellow warbler pause on a grass stem uh, or probably stalk a male, or something. Yeah, probably that a was male my, with the red streaks, yeah. Well, I, I didn't have binoculars at the time. Oh, I always okay. thought it was this small yellow bird, and I wanted right. to know what it was. So that nice. started me. Okay. And it sounds like you just dove in head first. I mean, I saw, I read a, a little bio of you on a website you used to use, and it said within three and a half years, you would burst on the national scenes. So tell me, how did how did you learn so fast? Well, the first year, I didn't know anybody. So I just went out and looked at birds by myself and I actually took my father with me if it was someplace I was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then I learned about an adult education series of classes taught at the local junior college led by um, Ted Chandick. Okay. And so he had like three terms and I took all three of them mm-hmm. and he thankfully was an ear birder. So I learned right away to Birding listen. Birding by ear was to right up front. Good. Right up front. And then I found my first rare bird by going up towards Point Reyes to go look for a singing red start, which I did not see because I found like the third county record of breeding northern parallas. Okay. And then from that, I met some people and went on a month-long trip with three guys I didn't even know. But I was just so fired up on seeing new birds that we ended up driving from California all the way down into the Rio Grande and then eventually up into Colorado. And by the time I got back, I had 125 new birds. Very cool. Very cool. You must have uh, been with some good birders. I'm guessing anyone who'd go on a trip like that had to be pretty avid. Certainly one of them was. Um, Actually, two out of the three were really avid. So Lots of stories, lots of crazy times. I'm sure. And we're good still, for you. still good friends. 
Very nice. Very nice. And so you got, you took some local birding classes, you went off on a big adventure trip and where did things go from there? Well, I met this group of young men. I didn't have any women that I knew, but we were all about the same age and we all really were interested in looking for birds around California. Mm-hmm. So essentially some group of us went every weekend running up and down California looking for state birds. And yeah. I was so excited. I was doing learning in my field guide. I would read it every night. I would drill myself on songs with a cassette tape that one of my mm-hmm. friends had made. And, you know, just really, really tried to learn sounds and identification. So you were really working it. That's cool. Isn't it great to develop a passion like that? We just full, you know, in with both feet, just going for it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm a fairly competitive person. And when I graduated from high school and started college, I really wanted to be a geologist. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, at that same school, I was taking the bird classes from years later, I had several teachers, professors who, you know, this is the early 70s, absolutely did not want women in geology. So, I mean, they flat (laughs) out anything else, really. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they just absolutely didn't want me, even though I had like the highest grades in the class. So, um, you know, life got in the way. And anyway, by the time I started looking at birds and I was so excited about and learning so fast, I just decided I was going to be as good as the guys. Mm -hmm. So I studied really, really hard. Sounds like you made it to there in a hurry. (laughs) That tell us the story that I know that you uh, somehow ended up at an ABA convention and the the birding by ear and birding by vision quizzes. How how did that's before I was involved in anything close to the ABA. How did how did that how did you get there and how did that all work out? Well, my old friend Jerry Langham, who lives in Sacramento, had suggested that I come to this convention. Mm-hmm. And so I drove myself to Tucson where it was. Okay. And essentially I had an old pair of crummy binoculars. And this was the first year that they had had these two contests. And okay. I was salivating over getting some new binoculars. So, mm-hmm. so how, how did the contest work? I, I, it, I have trouble envisioning that. Well, the photo quiz was essentially a bunch of different photographs on a board. Okay. And so, you know, all with numbers oh, you, and you, you had to try to... You went in and you wrote down your answers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And handed that in. And then the sound quiz, you put on headphones and listened to... Oh, Okay. Various yeah. songs. Okay. I, I envisioned somehow a big arena with everybody guessing or something. No, Not it was like all that. very uh, singular at that point. So uh-huh. I ended up coming in second in the photo quiz and first in the sound quiz. And I ended up wearing, winning two pairs of binoculars. Very cool. What, what kind of binos were they? Do you remember? Yes, I have. I still have them. One was the 7 by 35 Zeiss. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, old, those were the classics in those the days. The classics, Very nice. the yeah. ones that I used so much that I ended up looking like a raccoon when uh-huh. using them because the, <laughs> the eye cups were wearing it. And then the other one was a pair of tr- small trinovids that um, never really worked that well for me. But yeah. still cool. Got new binos, burst on the scene. That's cool. Oh, yeah. I bet people started to take notice. 
Well, it's funny because I had been chasing around California with these friends of mine, but I don't think anybody ever paid attention to me. Mm -hmm. Certainly not sort of the upper echelon. Right. And so what, I mean, I was just on the ceiling. I was, my adrenaline was so high after this. I'm sure you were. You know, I had arrived somewhere where I'm sitting down at the table and Guy McCaskey walks up to me and introduces himself. Now, who is this? Girl, I know. and <laughs> Will know, Russell, a girl winning a competition about men—that's just—that's just wrong. <laughs> oh my God! And Will Russell, who owns Wings Tour Company, who would uh-huh. later be my boss, right. he was the one handing out the awards, and he was like, "Who is this girl?" <laughs> so bet. it was really, really fun, and all the women were just like, "Yes, a woman, yes." So it was very, I bet you were, very you were exciting. A small minority at the meeting, I'm <laughs> guessing, in those days. Yeah. Uh, so uh, after that, uh, I know you've lived in some really, you know, hot birding spots. I mean, California itself is pretty darn good. I know you've lived at Cape May and in Tucson. So you have just lived in some of the premier birding places in the country. That's been that must have been pretty cool. It has been very cool. You know, starting birding in California was really awesome. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I met all sorts of wonderful people and mentors and friends, many who I still really enjoy seeing today. And, yeah, then I moved to Eric. Any of those mentors who are especially, uh, especially, you know, helpful or uh, played a big role in your development as a birder that you'd like to shout out for? Um, well, Guy McCaskey, uh-huh. John Dunn, Paul Lehman that I ended up marrying later. Right. And Rich Stalkup to a certain extent. And then there was just a, a number of other really good people that. Yeah. I mean, that's the who's who of California birding right there. Yeah. Right. And, you know, Kimball Garrett, uh, Matt Heindel, um, just a whole bunch of. Sure. Sure. Bunch of different and, then, and then, I'm sorry, I interrupted. And then you went off to Cape May. Right. And I lived there for seven years. Okay. Thankfully, our income was not tied to any particular location, so we could live anywhere. And right. Paul had wanted to move back east. And I really didn't want to because I had just been elected to the California Records Committee. Um, but <laughs> Made for long commutes. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up serving a, one term on them, but... You know, I said, if we're going to have to move back east, you can put me in K-May. So yeah. it was an absolutely wonderful experience living there. Oh, I, I can imagine. I've been to Cape May just once, and it was a dream. Oh, my goodness. What a place. Right. And it between the people and the birding, you know, really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That was my experience, too. Uh, every time you turn around, you meet somebody. I mean, it's just... It, just incredible. I mean, Sibley's around the corner and, uh, uh, you know, uh, oh, blanking. Uh, anyway, big names all over the place. But cool. So you right. lived there for a few years. And somewhere along the line, you started uh, working for one of the big tour companies. Who Was it? Uh, it was Wings. Wings, or? Wings yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what trip? What did you do for them? I co-led quite a few tours with, with Paul, who mm-hmm. would okay. design various interesting tours and uh, I led trips to the dry tortugas for five years or so Mm -hmm. but we traveled 
all over uh, doing these sort of unique tours. Right. And a, a private tour here and there. And then I used to go up to Alaska regularly with the Gamble Gnome trip. Oh, wow. So <laughs> you got some seriously uh, rare birds there, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus I went right. to Attu twice. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I've heard that was quite a, tell, tell me about those trips. The, I mean, you, I know you're living in these concrete bunkers. I kind of have visions of the, the big year movie sort of thing combined with stories I've heard from people. What was it like to be on? I, I mean, people don't do that anymore. They go on a boat and go on every day. What was it like? Well, the first time I went was in 1988. And back uh-huh. then the buildings were in reasonable shape. There was the lower base, which is where all the clientele slept and you know hung mm-hmm. out and then there was quote unquote the upper base which is where the leaders would stay and then where all the meals were served in the kitchen okay and then we had outhouses scattered about here and there right outhouses it, for doing toilet duties you mean right right yeah so okay. larry balch who organized it for so many years every mm-hmm. year would bring up you know new machinery or generators or bicycles. I mean, every year he improved it and improved it and improved it. Oh, wow. Till eventually, unfortunately, um, there were some issues later on where they ended up condemning the buildings. Okay. But anyway, it was, um, you know, you our bedroom was like, had two bunk beds in it and each room on the wall would have whoever had stayed in that room, what their life list was at the end of the trip. And (laughs) there was a huge group the first year I was there. There was a small group that went out for the first time for the advance week. Typically in the past, they'd only taken staff to prepare it, but they opened it up. So um, we went for that first week and then stayed for the additional three weeks. So I was out there for a month. Wow, that's a long time on Atu, I would think. And I I mean, did I'm sure not... it was wonderful, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it was interesting because a number, most of the people were so ready to go home, whereas yeah. there were about four of us who were not ready to go home. Yeah. And it was being out there in this pristine land, if you, you know, disregard all the World War II rotting yeah. rusting equipment around. But, you know, you were out there with singing snow buntings and rock sandpipers and Lapland longspurs and being up in the Arctic where all these incredible birds were breeding was just magical. And I really didn't want to go home. Yeah, experience you could just, there's nowhere else and mm-hmm. certainly nowhere else in the ABA and maybe nowhere else in the world you could have that experience. It, it had right. to be pretty special. It was. So you were... You were privileged in a big way to be a mm-hmm. part of that. I, I, I'm envious of you in a little bit. But anyway, good for you. Good for you. So you did that, and those were those were part of uh, uh, the same tour group. Same, that was a wings function. Well, the also, Atu or? was independent. That was independent. and then okay. I was a cook essentially for the gamble trips. Okay. And that was through wings, and then okay. I was a leader once back on land. But I had uh-huh. knee problems, and I really could not lead up a gamble with all the gravel. Gamble was, yeah, I've heard that's tough walking around there. Yeah. yeah. 
Anyway, cool. So you did that, and then mm-hmm. you ended up living in Tucson for a while. Mm-hmm. Is that I did. I ended up going to work. Odd, another pretty hot shit <laughs> place to live for a birder, I'll tell you. Gosh. Well, I was invited to come work in the office for Wings. Oh, and, okay. Um, so had it been in Phoenix, I would not have gone. No. Any place where the tarmac's so hot that it melts, I really don't want to live. Yeah, Tucson has the advantage of elevation and mm-hmm. birds too, of mm-hmm. course. But Close to the yes. southeast corner. That's nice. That's so, nice. I was there for five years, and then I moved to Portland when my mother was in her last years. I moved up here oh, to okay. be with her. Right. And you're still in Portland now, mm-hmm. or Portland area. Right. Yeah, cool. Uh, and that... I wanted to morph this into a little bit about Rare Birds uh, committee work. And I obviously had that little experience, a little, probably not little experience on the California one term is probably a while on the Rare Birds committee in California, but you've been on the, on the uh, Oregon and Washington committees for recent history. I don't know how long, quite a while. Yeah. I was on the New Jersey committee when I was in New Jersey. And Mm -hmm. then I was on the Oregon committee up until recently and mm-hmm. I had to rotate off, and I've right. been on the Washington committee for at least six years now. Obviously, you're an in-demand person for rare bird committees. Apparently, <laughs> ex- ex- explain the mystery of rare bird committees to anyone who's listening. They, you know, they seem, uh, yeah, yeah, hard to understand. You know, the, the vagrancies. I know you take a lot of different things into consideration. I mean, how detailed the description is, and what the likelihood is and vagrancy indexes and all. How do, how do you go about the analyzing that, a sighting? Well, the, the bottom line that people need to understand about documenting rare birds is that they, well, this is what I learned when I first started birding in California because I was mm-hmm. associated with people on the records committee, is right. that if I wanted to have my record accepted it was mm-hmm. my responsibility to document it as well as i could so that you know that it would be accepted and if it right. wasn't accepted is because i didn't have enough information or the mm-hmm. skills or whatever to um pass it so right. essentially if you think about it we're accepting records or rejecting it based upon the information that the people who saw it and imagine for researchers 50 or hundred years from now long when we're long gone, they don't know who we are. They don't know who the observer was that documentation needs to stand on its own. Right. So that's sort of the The premise. yeah. Yeah. And so we look at, you know, Photos these days are so easy compared sure. to old, you know, non-digital sketches and, and descriptions yeah. and stuff. People, yeah. it, writing doc uh, documentation and write-ups is a lost art. People just aren't doing it anymore. Mm-hmm. There's old school people like me who still can, um, but not many people do anymore. They carry their cameras around. They put it on eBird. And really don't write much of a description and let the photo stand on its own. Having right. said that, sometimes the photos aren't good enough. Mm-hmm. There would be information that's missing. And so having sketches and or notes, good notes to go with it, 
Right. Say what you, what you saw, how you excluded mm-hmm. other possibilities, mm-hmm. behavior. What, what was the lighting conditions? How far away were you? Was it backlit? Mm-hmm. Was it, what was his behavior? What sort of habitat was in? You know, all mm-hmm. those sort of things can be really relevant to. Sure. To assessing sure. the record. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert by any means, but I know enough that you say, you know, where you were, what the weather was, what kind of objects you used, how far away the bird was, what time of day it was, what the, you know, all of that sort of stuff plays right. a what's, role. You what's your experience? Just, Have you seen this before? How sure. do you separate it from ones that look similar how, to how it? Do you know, how do you know it wasn't some other similar species that might be mm-hmm. a lot more common? Right. Sure. Yeah, I'm a physician, and I know that uh, uncommon presentations of common illnesses are common, and common mm-hmm. presentations of rare illnesses are rare. You know, it's right, the same right. thing with birds. A, 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 a fleeting look at a rare bird is, you know, not much use. Right. There's a lot of birds that we all have to let go, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. Some some birds shall remain unidentified. <laughs> many. <laughs> many, yeah. Well, for me, way too many. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know... Even the best people make mistakes. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, you know, I don't want to name names, but I, I've seen people make plenty of errors. Yeah. A lot less than your average birder, but, you know, everybody so, makes mistakes. So and, um, and it's not there's like... There's always biases. We all have biases. I mean, you, oh, yeah. you see what you expect to see a lot of times. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And it once you... If you see something and you think, oh, that's going to be a blah 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 the information that you may be looking at or the field marks that mm-hmm. don't align with what you want it to be, you tend to ignore. Yeah. You look for, you say, oh, that could be such and such. Does it have this field mark? It mm-hmm. does. Therefore, it must right. be that. Not and or they the other, other seven only things. look sure. at the one mark that supports their you know, identification instead of the three others they also need to include. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's really helpful, Shani, and I hope, uh, I hope people enjoy that. You're also an artist. What did, when did, did you do formal art training? How did, how did that all come about? Well, both parents were talented artists. My father was an architectural renderer back in the days when Mm -hmm. he would look at blueprints and be able to do. Draw the building. Oh, you know. He even did the Squaw Valley Olympics, the painting that went to France as part of the decision. So he was really, really good at it. And my mother was a very good portraiture artist. And um, they met while she was working at a magazine or newspaper doing fashion artwork. So I learned at home. Sure. So starting at age three. The best of of mentors you grew up with. (laughs) And then I took classes. the right tools and the right... Right yeah, I took classes sure. through college. Okay, uh, and what? How is? How have you mingled? You know, your your art career and your birding career. I know you've done a, a lot of bird specific art. At least I I understand that you have. T- tell me a little bit about how that panned out, or is panning out. <laughs> um, yeah, I had mostly done landscapes and people and animals and various illustrative art before I started looking at birds and it really wasn't until after I got married that I had more time and decided to start doing birds and at that time 
Paul was the editor of Birding Magazine for ABA. Right. And so as my illustrations of birds improved, eventually we used some of them in the magazine. And then I was asked by various um, people to do illustrations for the ABA um, guides. Right. So, and then I had various other offers and commissions and books and catalogs and all sorts of stuff that I did illustrations for. And now I have a cover that I'm doing for a book and that I'm just starting to lay out. And then I have another project that I can't really talk about it. Okay. It's top secret. Top <laughs> you can tell secret. me, but you have to But tell the last me. <laughs> book that I worked on was called Birds of Montana, and it's a big status and distribution. I did all the black okay. and white illustrations on oh, the Oh, wow. So that's a big project. It. That's a big project. You also have a, a, a doing pets now. That's mm-hmm. kind of sounds like fun. I really have been having fun. I had to switch to acrylics to work on this project, um, and I started painting animals for gifts and... and uh, some commissions. And so when I lost my dog last year, it sort of revitalized my desire to, mm-hmm. to paint animals again. You know, it was Very my cool. first love. That's what I did yeah. as a little. You have kid. a website where you, where you are, are that business is sort of based online out of what's that called? It's just at shawneenfinnegan.com. And okay. it's, you know, Shawneen Finnegan's cool. pet portraits. I will make sure I have a link to that in the podcast notes. Very cool. That would be great. Thank you very much. Very cool. Uh, so what do you have planned for your you know, near-term and not-so-near-term future in terms of birding? Do you have any big trips planned or adventures? Well, this year we're doing domestic trips and okay. conferences. And the next one we're going on together is to the Western Field Ornithologist Conference and Albuquerque. Although okay. in a month I'm going over to uh, the northeast corner of Oregon with my best friend who's coming up from Cape May and she and I are just going to have a girls vacation hanging Very around cool. looking for grouse and whatever else we yeah. want to see. That and then like we always go to the Rio Grande Valley in November because we lead trips for the Burning Festival down there. That That's a good, I'm not a big festival goer, and that was probably the first festival I ever went to. It's a pretty good festival. It it's, is a great it's, festival. It's a bl- great place to go birding in the winter, so that, <laughs> you know, that helps. And I, but. I've done it at least 15 times, either oh as goodness. a leader or working the booth for wings or as a presenter. Mm-hmm. Right. So... So you're well well acquainted with that festival. Oh yes, it's so much yeah. fun. Good, good. I I have to say, we talked to Shanine and I. You and I were sat at a table at dinner together at the Wasp Conference in Moses Lake, and we talked a little bit about the the uh, searcher trip we took out of San Diego. That was oh my goodness, that was so cool. Wasn't uh, that had, wonderful? Oh, I mean the birds were unbelievable, but the whales oh my goodness (laughs) that was one of the most epic experiences out on the ocean i've ever had yeah i don't know how you could beat that it just was crazy we just parked the boat for a couple hours and the whales just were everywhere it was 
I've never been that close. I mean, they were coming right up to the boat. We weren't. We were just oh, holding yes. still. No, I just so, parked. Um, I didn't really get it how they lunge feed. I'd heard about that, but I didn't really get it mm-hmm. until you see it about eight feet from the boat. It's just like, <laughs> oh, my, this big baleen area just bulges out like 20 feet out of the bottom of this blue whale and the water comes spraying back out. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, just when I those. when I was a kid, I I really never thought I'd see a blue whale because they were so their numbers were so few at the time. So right. absolutely fabulous that they have made a comeback, and we got yes. to have such a, an amazing experience between that and fin whale and humpbacks and oh everything it all was that krill. And, and it was right around that time that all of the the long tail Jaegers was zipping by, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It seems like in that I don't know if it's the same exact time, but it was pretty close to that. We're in that you know in, inside the islands area where the where the Jaegers would just seem like every ten minutes you saw long tail Jaegers. So that it's kind of it's a fabulous trip. Distracted you from the whales. <laughs> it, was, it was like oh my goodness. Yeah, that was, yeah, I'd, I'd give a shout out for that. Anyone who wants a spectacular, luxurious, easy, pelagic experience, go in that five-day, you know, Labor Day weekend time frame, uh, uh, pelagic trip out of San Diego. It's, oh my goodness, it's, it's. A Highly recommend it. It's a great opportunity. Do you think you'll get to go on that again or be invited again? Yeah. Well, you're, you're you know, really I've, I've been out there twice, once as a passenger and once as a leader. And well, you I had a great really, time both really, times. You are a really, really good leader. They should invite you again. Oh, thank you. <laughs> if they're listening, <laughs> ask Shanine. She's really good. <laughs> anyway, uh, do you, Shanine, do you have any advice for people, young people, old people, anybody in between and birding, you know, things they should try to do, don't miss experiences, you know, any advice to give out? Well, pause. I mean, there's so many aspects to birding. The the thing that I love about it is that it is a never ending learning experience. And it doesn't matter what age you start. I mean, if you get to start when you're young, like my husband did day irons, you know, it's like learning a language. You are such a sponge at that early age. Yeah, those people big, big advantage. Yeah, I mean the Dave Sibleys, the Michael O'Briens, you know the, the Richard Crossley. Savants, almost savants. <laughs> yeah, you know, and Paul and John started really early, and you know that's such a leg up. And there's so mm-hmm. many young birders compared to in the past. You know, when all these yeah. kids started, but they didn't know anybody. And now they have such a right. connection with technology these days. And yeah. the learning curve is so incredibly steep. But I think, you know, some of the kids, I think, um, you know, go to camps and they get well grounded. Others spend a lot of time by themselves. And I would just, Suggest people bird with somebody better than them, because that's where you really learn. I have no trouble with that. (laughs) And learning, not necessarily looking at your apps. And I see all these people who are not even taking binoculars anymore. They just look through their viewfinder and take pictures and then identify the birds, which I think may be 
you know, maybe it's because I'm old school, but I think you really miss a lot by doing that. Oh, because no, of course, you cannot, you cannot, I've got a good lens and you cannot see as well through a camera as you can see through binos. I well, mean, you you're can't. missing, you're missing behavior. You're missing yeah. all these clues because your focus energy Focusing is on all the, visual. Getting the picture. And you mm -hmm. focus on getting it focused and getting the light right and not looking at the bird. Right. I mean, I even had a kid on one of the pelagic trips I lead out of Newport, Oregon, where he is taking pictures at the front of the boat and then trying to look at his screen on a bouncing to boat. To identify the bird. Yeah. yeah. Pretty hard. Which, which I, I, and, and, you know, <laughs> what can I, I say? Can I can barely see the screen just because it's always a glare and, you know, you have to be in a right. shady place to look at it. And it, it's, yeah. I don't even look at them until I go home <laughs> when I take pictures. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I love to take pictures. Oh, it's fun, but I yeah, love not, to. Not but whole, I also it's not the whole game, right? With, there have been periods like right now where my camera broke and I haven't replaced it yet, and I end up spending a lot more time watching, listening, and drawing, and drawing. No matter how bad you think you might be, really, really helps you observe a bird learning yes. the topography you know what what are the parts of a bird and then trying to draw those or at least make notes sure even if it doesn't even look like the bird it doesn't matter mm -hmm. it helps you imprint it makes you really observe the bird For and sure. start in the backyard look at your common birds Get to know your common birds. Get to pay attention to what they sound like. If you hear something you don't know, follow it till you find it. All those yeah. things are really basic. But when I was starting out, you know, the British birders were so much better than most Americans that I knew. And the reason is because their culture would have them take along a sketchbook, you know, do field notes and learn how to right. draw. And that really made them better birders because they could really, you know, they really observed birds better than we did. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, well, that's that's good advice, Shanine. That's good advice. Why don't we end with one good birding story? Tell, tell me a, a, a story that uh, would entertain people. Can you do that? Sure. Probably or the highlight of like. my life. <laughs> as far as adrenaline rushes, was mm -hmm. finding a yellow-nosed albatross oh, wow. in southern New Jersey. And it was crazy because I was late for something during spring weekend, and I was driving up the Garden State Parkway, and there's an area where the Laughing Gull Colony that's on the Atlantic side of the parkway mm -hmm. commutes back and forth over to the Delaware side where all the horseshoe crabs are laying their eggs. So there's just, right. just this constant stream of laughing gulls back and forth. And as I was going through this, there was a big bird flying towards me over the center divide. There was a big green sward in the middle. Holy and God. I was looking at this going, what is that? And, you know, I'm in the fast line going 60 some miles an hour. And <laughs> is that a pelican? I mean, what is that? And as it got closer to me, I realized it was an albatross. And it went 
you know, shooting past me in the opposite direction. So I tried not to run into anybody as I scooched across three lanes and skidded, you know, on the Get into an accident. (laughs) Oh, you just stopped right on the highway. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it had fortunately done a U-turn and then came back north again and passed me. But the light was bad. I couldn't see it very well. And uh, it disappeared. So to make a long story short, it was not seen the rest of the day. Couldn't refine it. At least I, I knew it was like yellow nose, black browed, something along those lines. I was able to mm-hmm. go look up books and figure out that it was a yellow nose. But thank goodness, two days later, it was found over on the Delaware side. And a okay. lot of people got to see it. So that Very was wonderful. Cool. And then it turned that, out that, that it was the same albatross, they think, that had been up in Connecticut at a turn colony and then seen on Fire Island. And it was... <laughs> You know, lost, lost <laughs> on the East Coast. <laughs> well, it was displaying to great blackback gulls, which was the closest thing it could find to another albatross. <laughs> yeah. So, an article had been written in the in the New York Times called "Lost and Looking for Love." Yeah. So that when I found it, and again, it started displaying to to blackback gulls. I ended up being mm-hmm. on World News Tonight with Peter Jennings for about ten seconds, but that was wow. Fine. My five seconds of fame. Almost your 15 minutes of fame, maybe five (laughs) seconds of fame. But that was pretty, pretty darn exciting. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Very cool. Very cool, Shanine. Any last things? I want to just uh, finish up with uh, how people can uh, get in touch with you if if that's something you'd like. I know you have the, the website with your uh, art and I'll make sure I have a link to that in the podcast now. So there any other ways people should reach out to you? Well, people can reach me on uh, Facebook, you know, send me a, a message on Facebook or right. my email is just my name at gmail.com. Okay, perfect. Shani, thanks so much for being a guest today. I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I, as I said, I'm, when I met you on the search, I think it was on the search or on the San Diego trip, I just thought this is really a hot birder oh my goodness she's really good and really nice and really helpful and what a great field lead trip leader i thought my goodness that's something uh, and then i uh i heard about you living in portland from i don't know bruce or someone and uh and uh met you at the conference and i thought wow this is this is boy i'm living right to meet a really wonderful birder like shunning so thanks so much for being my guest i appreciate it and uh you have a great day Take okay care. thank you so much Yeah, bye-bye. Now that was fun. What an opportunity to talk to Shaneen Finnegan. I hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did, be sure to leave a review on the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcast feeds. And check out birdbanner.com. I'll leave photographs and other relevant information related to this podcast there, and you can check that out also. So until next time, good birding. Good day.